the evacuation initiated. That's the sermon title uh, upcoming this Sunday that we're going to discuss today. Our text is Exodus 3 verses 14 and 15, but we'll be taking uh, a broader look at some of the other aspects of the chapter. But the bulk of the day is going to be spent on the divine name of God as revealed to Moses from the burning bush. So I'm Paul Wilkinson, uh, Group's Minister Associate at the Brentwood Campus, and it's good to be with you again. You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. So let's dive right into this divine name, which is really in many ways a highlight of the Old Testament and a highlight in the way God reveals himself to his people. And then we're going to take a trip through a number of resources that I've pulled off of my shelf in the library that's hopefully going to stimulate some ideas in your mind about different ways to teach this, different connections you might be able to draw, and how we can leverage it all for the sake of making disciples of Jesus who go out and make disciples with Jesus. So here we go. So we'll begin with reading the text of Exodus 3. Um, and again, the key passages that the campus pastors will each preach on is going to be 14 and 15. I'm going to spend the bulk of my time with you talking about this name of God, but we'll also highlight at least two other things. What do we do with the angel of the Lord? How do we want to understand that? And then also this idea of God hearing his people and crying out so that God delivers them, um, not necessarily from fallenness per se, although we can certainly see the oppression of the Egyptians as metaphorical in terms of fallenness, but like we mentioned last week the Israelites had really done nothing wrong uh, to our knowledge here they were doing what they ought to have done Uh, a new leader rose up that didn't know who Joseph was and through the fear of being taken over again and have Egypt ruled by foreigners gets afraid of the blessings and prosperity of the Israelites and then subjugates them and so that's where we find ourselves today is that these subjugated Israelites then call out to God to the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and say, deliver us from this oppression. God hears that suffering and then he decides to act through Moses to redeem his people. So the biggest thing in this text, I would say, is the name of God, the I am. Um, And we are going to spend a few minutes on that. I'm going to talk about that from a number of resources that I have, first of which is a Bible dictionary. And if you don't have a Bible dictionary or a Bible encyclopedia, um, get with me and maybe we can get you one. Or get with me and maybe we can start stocking our library with more, at least here on the Brentwood campus. Or I can point out some that are online. But you just can't beat a good Bible dictionary in a Bible encyclopedia. It's almost always the first place I start, whether it's a doctrine or a um, particular text. So Yahweh, and this will be the Y-H-W-H, the Tetragrammaton is also called. So it's supposed to be the unpronounceable name of God. We say Yahweh as maybe a close pronunciation of what it would be. But, uh, well, let's just dive in because they're going to they're gonna talk about that. So um, here's from the Bible Dictionary. And I don't know if I said this is the Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary. 
The Hebrew name of the God of Israel, probably originally pronounced Yahweh, eventually the Jews gave up pronouncing it, considering the name too holy for human lips. Instead, they say Adnai, or Lord. This oral tradition came to be reflected in the written Greek translation of the Old Testament, and that's called the Septuagint, meaning LXX is how you see it designated, 70, because presumably 70 rabbis came together and translated it into Greek. Um, This came to be understood in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as kurios, or the Greek word for Lord. And it is often so quoted in the New Testament. And it gives Mark 1.3, Romans 4.8. English versions of the Old Testament also tend to translate this word Lord with the all caps. Um, And then occasionally you'll see it as Y-A-H. So here's here's the most important part for us. Although I want you to hold on to that idea of Lord, the caps, L-O-R-D. But in Exodus 3:14 through 16, Yahweh is linked with the verb hayah, to be. So the verb hayah in Hebrew means to be, probably referring to the presence of God with his people. The presence of God with his people. So when God reveals himself as a proper name given over to Moses, he reveals his name as the Hebrew verb to be. <laughs> this next selection comes from Thomas C. Odin, who passed away, I think just last year, was a great uh, theologian out of the Methodist tradition, the Methodist uh, denomination. But he, he truly was wonderful. So this comes from his primary theology, the first volume um, called The Living God. And this is from his systematic theology. This comes on page 32, if you happen to have the text or could get it. I'm starting on page 32, The Naming God. And Odin says this, God in scripture does not deal with humanity anonymously, without a name. God is willing to let the recipients of divine mercy know the divine name Yahweh. And then he goes through a a big list of names. And then he has this paragraph about God's attributes and God's nature. Characteristically, in Hebraic scripture, God's being is revealed to us through sublime names that designate who God is. The revelation of God's personal character is closely connected with these names that reveal God's nature. The discussion of divine attributes is best viewed as a fuller development and clarification of scriptural names for God. And so here's for us as teachers, as group leaders, um, these names of God assist Christian teaching in ordering, limiting, and regulating Christian language about God. And so what Odin's saying here is that if we want to talk about God to our people and we want to do it biblically, then let's start with the names of God and let's unpack the doctrines and attributes of God from those names. And we're going to do that today in the context of this special name for God, Yahweh, meaning I am or the verb to be. Uh, We're going to talk about how that points to his aseity. Aseity is a Latin term meaning from itself. And so in the context of God, we mean from himself. And that is to say that God is not dependent upon any external reality for either his existence, his will, his purpose, or anything else. That God is radically and totally independent. And some of that is bound up in this special name for God, Yahweh. So I'm jumping over to the next page, page 33, and Odin says this. Two of these names in particular, Yahweh, in parentheses Lord, and Elohim, parentheses God, point succinctly to the divine reality. They are especially powerful and laden with meaning when combined in the condensed ascription, Lord God. That'd be Yahweh Elohim, uh, like in Genesis 2, verse 4. 
The name Yahweh or Jahweh or Jehovah is closely connected with the intensification of the Hebrew verb to be. So again, like the Bible dictionary told me, I was already on the lookout for this Hebrew verb, Hayah. And then now Odin is telling me um, this special name just intensifies, augments, doubles down on this verb. Then Moses said to God, if I go to the Israelites and tell them that the God of their forefathers has sent me to them and they ask me his name, what shall I say? God answered, I am. That is who I am. Tell them I am has sent you to them. Um, And so here Odin continues. Yahweh suggests the awesome meaning he who is or he who is what he is. And the uh, Revised Standard Version alternatively translates, I will be what I will be. Yahweh incomparably is all caps is Odin continues one named I am because I am suggests that there is no external cause for God's existence outside himself the name Yahweh appears to unite the notion of one who purely is with the notion of one who is in the process of continually becoming and becoming disclosed through historical revelation revelation uh, simply what he means by that is this idea of the God who is transcendent outside of nature, um, eternally existent, yet is now revealing himself. So the same one who created um, out of his own free choice and decision is the same one who is now revealing himself in history to his people. All right. Odin continues later in a remarkable passage. So remember, how do we connect all this to gospel? If the Emmaus story is accurate, then Jesus says all the law and the prophets point to me. So we ought to be elevating the gospel in all of our teaching, no matter where we are in the Bible. And so here's how Odin does it. And I think it's just a, it's just a great example. I encourage you to steal it from him. Later, in a remarkable passage, John's gospel would recall that Jesus said of himself, In very truth I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And that's John eight fifty eight. Before Abraham was born, I am, is what Jesus says in John eight fifty eight. And Odin says, In a way, that suggests that in Jesus we meet nothing less than the personal self-disclosure of Yahweh, I am. And so think about the other name given to Jesus. You'll call him Emmanuel, God with us, God with his people. And for Jesus then to take the special name of God from Revelation, I mean, take the special name of God from Exodus 3.14, claim that for himself as the I am, uh, Jesus is truly saying that in him the fullness of deity dwells, and he's truly divine in revealing that to his people. All right, this comes from... Uh, Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology, subtitled An Introduction to Biblical Doctrine. Grudem says this about the I am statement. It is also possible to translate this statement, I will be what I will be. Remember, Odin hinted at that, and now Grudem's picking up on it in more fullness. It is possible to translate this statement, the I am, the Yahweh, the intensification of the verb, Hayah, I will be what I will be. But in both cases, the implication is that God's existence and character are determined by himself alone and are not dependent on anyone or anything else. This means that God's being has always been and will always be exactly what it is. God is not dependent upon any part of creation for his existence or his nature. Without creation, God would still be infinitely loving, infinitely just, eternal, omniscient, trinitarian, and so forth. 
God's being is also something totally unique. It is not just that God does not need the creation for anything. God could not need the creation for anything. So it's not only simply that he doesn't need creation, but to truly be God, to truly be the maximally perfect being, or as Anselm would say, in the, uh, the greatest conceivable being, that God could not need the creation for anything. The difference between, the, and this is Grudem again, the difference between the creature and the creator is an immensely vast difference, for God exists in a fundamentally different order of being. It is not just that we exist and God has always existed, it is also that God necessarily exists in an infinitely better, stronger, more excellent way. The difference between God's being and ours is more like the difference between the sun and a candle, more than the difference between the ocean and a raindrop, more than the difference between the Arctic ice cap and a snowflake, more than the difference between the universe and the room we are sitting in. God's being is qualitatively different. So what does it mean for being to necessarily exist? Well, what it means is that if God is to exist, then God is going to exist. Uh, that's a weird statement for non-philosophers, but here's all it really means, is I can imagine a world where I'm not here. I can imagine a world, and many people know a world where this podcast doesn't exist, because they don't listen to it. I can imagine a world where there was no United States of America. Uh, perhaps a revolutionary war was lost, and uh, this continued under British rule. So all of those things could have happened. That makes them contingent facts. That makes them things that could have happened one way, but happen to exist in another way. God's not like that. God is who he is and could not have been other than he is because in his nature, in his pure character, exists all the maximal perfections possible. And this is what this statement of I am is getting at, at least for these theologians, is, is to say that he intensifies this verb that I am present, I am active, I am with you. It's a personal name to say that I belong in relationship with you it speaks of his eternal existence per Odin, and then Grudem adds that it also exemplifies his character and his necessary existence of that just, moral, righteous, and good character of God. And so now we hop over to one of my favorite theologians, tends to be a little more philosophical. I love all these guys, but this one tends to be the most philosophical of all of them, and his name is Millard Erickson, in uh, a book simply titled Christian Theology. And so here's what he says about our text for today. Um, Erickson is really big on the personal dynamic of God, which we've seen partially in these other three, to so the Bible dictionary from Odin and from Grudem. And now Erickson is going to double down and go a little bit deeper into this idea of personhood. So I'm going to read a little bit from the previous paragraph. I guess you didn't know it was a previous paragraph, but it's actually about some other worldviews and some other religions, and then going to contrast that with the God of Christianity. While spirituality might seem to imply personality, this does not necessarily follow. Georg Hegel, who philosophy, whose philosophy influenced much of 19th century theology, believed in the absolute, capital A, a great spirit or mind that encompasses all things within itself. In Hegel's metaphysics, reality as a whole is one great thinking mind, and all of what most people consider to be a finite objects and persons are simply thoughts in the mind of the absolute, capital A. There really is no personal self-consciousness about this being. 
however, no personality to which one can relate, nor is there any personal deity in a number of Eastern religions. In Hinduism, reality is Brahma, the whole of which we are individual parts, or Atman. One does not relate to reality by turning outward as to individual person, but rather by withdrawing inward through a process of contemplation. The aim of this process is to lose one's own individual identity and self-consciousness, to be, in effect, absorbed into the whole. Nirvana is the stage at which all individual striving ceases and one becomes simply at rest. The biblical view is quite different. Here, God is personal. He is an individual being with self-consciousness and will, capable of feeling, choosing, and having a reciprocal relationship with other personal and social beings. God's personality is indicated in several ways in Scripture. One is the fact that God has a name, which he assigns to himself and by which he reveals himself. When Moses wonders how he should respond when the Israelites will ask of the name of God who has sent him, God identifies himself as I am or I will be. By this he demonstrates that he is not an abstract, unknowable being or a nameless force. Uh, this name is not used merely to refer to God or to describe him, but also to address him. And so look at the incredible contrast between Hegelian philosophy um, and, and so Hegel was an interesting guy. I think he wanted to be Christian. I'm not sure he really understood how to be that. His dates are uh, 1770 to 1831. So right here around the uh, sort of tail end of the Enlightenment. Um, he comes on the scene and he really is a dominant figure in philosophy. A lot of people picked up on his philosophy. And his major contribution to philosophy is likely the idea of... Um, progression as a result or function of struggle so that through conflict whether it be historically between peoples between ideas or whatever else uh, history progresses and there's a natural uh, progress in the in the positive sense of that term where there is an increase in a betterment or a natural evolution to ideas uh, and then likewise for morality and the rest of it so Hegelianism is often taught, probably wrongly, but anyways, the way it's been characterized is that you have a thesis, then you have an antithesis, and then you have a synthesis. So somebody will posit one idea, somebody will posit the counter idea, and then somebody comes along and brings the two, brings the two ideas together in some, um, you know, some hybrid synthesized integrated philosophy and then as this happens history progresses the history of ideas progresses and we get continually better and so he was an, an optimist in that way um erickson's certainly right that he was an idealist that god was not a personal being who wanted a relationship with his people but a mind but sort of like the, the great spirit who thinks and then out of that, you get this progression and struggles. And of course, the way we've seen it manifested, I mean, even if you don't know who Hegel is, you probably know who Marx is. And so Karl Marx really just picked up on Hegelian philosophy and applied it to economics. So that now you have these um, thesis, antithesis, synthesis within the context of, of economics. You, however that conflict plays out depends on whether you're a, a, a Marxist in terms of ideas or a Marxist in terms of taking up arms. But either way progression as you overcome that so maybe the conflict between the feudal lord and the peasants uprising 
new synthesis and the industrial revolution or something and then on and on it goes until you get to paradise and i think that's the problem with all of these systems and it's really one of the beauties of christianity is that they all promise some sort of utopia they all promise some sort of natural betterment that happens and when historically it's just tough to see that sometimes is that they never tell us really what it looks like when you get there i mean there's vague ideas of it so for marx would be the classless society for Hegel, it would just be sort of the perfect um, the perfect mind, the totally rational self or something. But we never seem to get there. Um, humanity still seems to fall back on their sin. And I think that's what none of these great thinkers in history really understood, is that there's a spiritual dimension to people. And if they're not free from their bondage and sin, remember what happens in the Exodus, liberated from the oppression of Egypt, well, likewise, Christ liberates us from the oppression of the sin of bondage due to Satan. And so if we don't understand that, we really can't minister to the person well. We really can't get the kind of culture change we want. So we get this incredible contrast that Erickson paints for us, where we have Hegelian, great spirit, mind that encompasses all things within itself. The All of reality is one great thinking mind. How do you relate to that? How do you love that? How do you pray to that sort of being? And then you look at the Eastern traditions, Hinduism with the Brahma, which everything, there are no distinctions, everything is a singular reality, and that we we look inward rather than outward to the world that God created, and our minds match up to that world, and it's just so radically different in the Bible, and, and particularly in Christianity, fully revealed in Christ, it's so radically different that we have a personal God that says, I created you, I knit you in your mother's womb, the psalmist tells us. That God says, if a hair is out of place, God knows about it, God's knowledge and intimacy with our lives and our in our values and our being is so intimate to us that he wants relationship with us and this is what the payoff is in the christian faith is that we get eternal life in the full presence of god in glorified bodies that don't sin and rebel anymore but are perfectly related to the triune godhead and to have a god that is personal that i can call out to that i can that i know hears me and then we look at Jesus, as Hebrews tells us, we know that we have a God who has been tempted in ways as Jesus was and yet remained sinless and faithful to redeem his people. It's just incredible. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And we as teachers ought to be elevating that and hammering that home every week, the uniqueness and beauty of the Christian faith. All right, last one. This is called Christianity 101 by Gilbert Belezekian. I hope I said his name correctly. He is... Um, a professor emeritus at Wheaton College, or was when he wrote this text anyway. And he's a charter member and elder of Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois, and father of Community 101. Well, this is his Christianity 101, and it's just a guide to eight basic Christian beliefs, so just a basic doctrine. It's a good book to start out with if you're just learning doctrine or you have um, students or family members. It's a good intro into basic doctrine. So now he's going to talk about the transcendence of God, Again, reiterating all that that we've heard from the other theologians, the um, aseity is your theological term for the day. God's radical independence from all things. In majestic tones, the opening words of the Bible announce that before time began and all things were created, there existed nothing and no one but God. Before anything else, God was. Human life cannot exist outside of time and space. We need time to breathe, to think to work, and to play. We need places where we can move, rest, and rise. Not so with God. He created time, space, and everything that exists within them. 
He was before creation. When Moses tried to pierce the mystery of the identity of God, he was given this mysterious name for him. I am the one who is. And so notice, so we have I am who I am. I am who I will be. I am with you. And then this one, I am the one who is. So there's a little variation in how this is interpreted. But even that gives us further insight into who God is and the way he relates to his people uh, as a personal being. It's as if God were saying, Moses, you cannot see me, but I am more real than anything you can touch and see because I am life original from whom all other life derives. I am dependent on nothing and no one for my existence. I am pure being, discreet and autonomous. So we see here that God, and again, here's the way I like to think about it when I teach theology this way, is that I want to make God so big, so magnificent, so awesome that I can bring someone to the point of saying this. Why would God ever care about me? How on earth can I ever relate to something that grand, something greater than the universe itself? Um, Boy, what do I do with that? Because then we as teachers are able to say that God came and got you, that God came and died for you. So that the bigger I make God, the more radical, the more creative, the more awesome that we can make God out to be, then the smaller, weaker, insignificant humanity becomes until we add the caveat that God chooses to love you. And it's in his love that we get our identity, security, purpose, worth, value, and all the rest of it. It's not because of anything we do. It's not because of anything we are. It's because that maximally perfect being, that greatest conceivable being, chooses to love us, chooses to have relationship with us. So I, I really encourage you, don't don't think you can make God so grand that people can't get to him. I, I, uh, some people say we can't be too theological, um, and it kills the faith if we're too theological. I'm yet to see the place that's too theological, because if you're doing theology well, then you are increasing your value at the same time you're increasing God's value because if he's the maximally perfect being, the greatest gift in the universe, the most wondrous entity in the entire universe, and he gives himself to me freely uh, as we see in the death of his son, then wow, what an amazing life that is for me that I can have. So I find that the people who shy from theology, who don't want to dive into theology deep, ironically is their god that's in a box is their god that's really little and is their people that don't have much value and worth it's the people who are willing to chase down this sort of weirdness and tough thinking about god's attributes character and nature that their god gets so big that it transmits so much value to the people to god's people and that's what we ought to be about as teachers another thing i'd like to talk about in this text that may pop up i don't know if it will or not but the angel of the lord what do we do with that? The angel of the Lord. So theophanies, theophanies are where God appears to people in the Old Testament. So for instance, God appearing to Job out of the whirlwind, that would be a theophany. A Christophany is an appearance of Jesus. Some like to argue that Christ is present, like we've been talking about throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, and that when God relates to people directly, it actually is Christ. That's the one doing it. Now we know that Jesus is not incarnate yet, right? John 1 teaches us that, that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. To become flesh means that you previously weren't flesh. But we see 
a numerous times throughout the Old Testament this phrase, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. And what makes it unique is that we also see the phrase an angel of the Lord. Okay, so we see the angel of the Lord and an angel of the Lord. And these entities act radically different. When I do a search for the angel of the Lord in the English Standard Version, I get 56 results across 52 verses. And I don't think I've talked to a few biblical studies people uh, that know Hebrew a good deal better than I know it. And they say there's really no grammatical argument to be had about whether Christ is present in the angel of the Lord formula of the Old Testament. But I do think there's a powerful theological argument to be made with respect to the angel of the Lord being the second person. uh, Just because of some of the attributes and some of the language used. Now, all of this could, I mean, you could argue that all of it is just a spokesman. But, I mean, if you think about our text for today, Exodus 3.2, it is the angel of the Lord that appears in the bush. So Exodus 3.2 says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And so it could be the case that when the angel of the Lord says, I am who I am, it's a spokesman saying, well, yeah, you know, Yahweh, God is somewhere else, but, you know, just call him the I am when you go to the Israelites. But that's not really how it reads. It reads like this entity speaking from the burning bush is saying, I am who I am, uh, which is just which is just so incredible. Uh, let me hop to Genesis 2.11. I'm sorry, <laughs> Genesis 22.11. And that's when the angel of the Lord appears to Abraham. It says, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You have not withheld your son from me, it says in verse 12. So just this key moment in the in the story of Abraham where he's willing to sacrifice Isaac. And we get this angel of the Lord figure popping up and sort of claiming an incredible you know, it should be like, you didn't withhold your son from God, but that's not what it says. It says, you didn't withhold your son from me. And that's, that's pretty stunning. All right. So let's look at Genesis sixteen seven, And this is where Sarai, so not Sarah yet, but Sarai deals very harshly with her servant Hagar. And Hagar flees. And in verse 7 of Genesis 16, we read that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way of Teshur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Uh, Now catch this. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now you would expect a mere, um, you would expect a mere messenger or representative of the one true God to say, God's going to multiply your offspring. Now, we could say, I'm speaking for God here. I'm going to multiply your offspring. But again, as we just approach this text, it's the way it reads. The angel of the Lord says, I will multiply your offspring. Seems to be taking some pretty incredible abilities and initiatives on their own. And then you see this all throughout the Old Testament, uh, where this angel of the Lord continues to um, claim sort of what we would expect God to claim. And it's it's really stunning. So I've come to think that the angel of the Lord may very well be instances in which um, the second person of the Trinity makes 
himself known uh, to these people in the Old Testament. Uh, just again, because of some of the, just like when Jesus says, I have the authority to forgive sins and claims these sort of incredible things for himself, you wouldn't expect a mere messenger to do. Likewise with the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's just things you wouldn't expect if it were only a messenger. And the point of all that is that if someone in your group brings up who is the angel of the Lord, if you feel led to go into it, hey, some people think it's just a mere messenger, others think it may actually be the second person of the Trinity showing up here, then you're able to do so. Or you may just say, you know, um, you know, some people debate that. There's a few different views. We can handle that offline later. I'd be, I'd be more than happy to talk about that with you. Uh, but it's going to take us a little too far afield this morning. So however you want to deal with it, there you go. The last thing I want to comment on for this week is this the Lord. So whenever we see the all caps L-O-R-D, it is that name Yahweh, the intensification augmentation of Yah, uh, the verb to be in in the Hebrew. But that that God repeatedly says, um, say this, to, so I'm, I'm in verse 15. Say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Uh, that That's worth, if you have some time in your groups, that's worth parking on. We know that Jesus says the same thing, um, that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And when he does it, he, he does it based off of this this phrase, essentially. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hop to the Matthew passage, and that's Matthew... 22 verse verse 32 so matthew 22 verse 32 you can also find it in mark 12 27 and there is really no reason why i'm going to one rather than the other so in matthew 22 uh the verse 32 is what will elevate and highlight but i want to start a little bit sooner than that so they're um talking about a man that dies and have no children his brother marries his wife this happened seven times you know who is um you know, whose wife is she in heaven? So I'm going to begin in verse 29 of chapter 22 of Matthew. Matthew 22, verse 29. You are mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So not only can we connect Jesus, essentially what we've done in this, and I honestly didn't even intentionally do this, but I'm going to take credit because it's been done, is we've gone through three layers in which we can connect Jesus to this passage here in the Old Testament while elevating the name of God, making God awesome, radical, creative in his aseity. Remember, aseity means from itself. So God from himself is the source of his character existence and so forth is that he's not dependent upon any external thing for either his existence uh, will or whatever else and so we had three layers we had the angel of the lord layer where we could talk about the second person being demonstrated there we have the um, god of abraham isaac and jacob and we can connect that to matthew 22 or mark 12 as jesus's response to the sadducees about the resurrection which will allow us both to teach on the resurrection as connected to the metaphor of being liberated out of egypt now we're liberated out of our sin and bondage because jesus has conquered death uh, so we can connect the gospel that way or 
we can connect it um, with the name itself, the I am. When Jesus makes that radical claim, before Abraham was, I am. So in three ways, we can be preaching the gospel as we're unpacking the Exodus. Always being sensitive to the historical context that I pray you established last week uh, with this king who this Pharaoh who is rejecting the Israelite people because he's afraid of foreigners taking over and ruling Egypt again. And now they're in oppression. So always set the historical context. Um, always set the intent of the author to reveal God as personal and all powerful and his aseity essentially just um, coming to deliver his people that God's presence is with us and that this is an example of the hope we have for all eternity that we'll be present with the triune Godhead. Uh, but don't lose sight of the gospel in all this, man. It's um, such a powerful, just a powerful framework for understanding God, for the covenant he makes to bring his people out. Remember, we talked about covenants again last week. And this is the problem. Like, God, you you brought us here through Joseph and you seem to have made covenant with us. And now we're being oppressed. They cry out. God hears. God liberates them. And so he sort of makes a covenant that they're going to worship at this mountain and I'm going to free my people so that they can worship me in freedom as well. Um, And that we partake of that promise as New Testament believers through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Always keep the gospel in front of your people. Never betray the historical context. Um, And and don't be afraid of theology. Uh, The bigger God gets, the more value we have. Because that's the God we serve. That's the God who loves us and wants us so much so that he's willing to come and die for us in order to bring us back into his kingdom to be a part of that kingdom uh, with him for all eternity in the presence of the triune Godhead so don't flee from theology go deep challenge your people and um, there's nothing better 